0: It was about sovereignty, it was about a rational choice for the future. Weaponizing the nuclear program became kind of a national mission.
1: Welcome to Alliance, a podcast about the humanities and existential risk. I'm Alice Evert.
2: I'm Henry Tan.
1: And we'll be your hosts. Today we talk to Assistant Professor Chi-Young Harrison Kim about history, nuclear warfare, and North Korea. This podcast is brought to you by the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities and the Balliol Interdisciplinary Institute.
2: You have just heard a recording of a nuclear weapons test carried out in the Nevada desert in 1955. Nuclear warfare is still a threat that is present today.
1: Nuclear warfare poses an existential risk. That is, it has the capacity to wipe out humanity or lead to the collapse of human civilization. Today, we're going to look at how history can help us deal with and understand that threat. We're going to be looking in particular at the nuclear situation in North Korea. To talk about it, we Skyped with Chi-Young Harrison Kim.
0: I'm Assistant Professor in the Department of History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. My main research area is modern Korea, and especially North Korea, and you can say that I'm a labor historian, a social historian, mostly in the 1950s, 1960s North Korea.
1: So to kick it off, how do you think history can contribute to understanding uh, nuclear risk and nuclear crisis?
0: Those are some complicated questions. The development of nuclear programs throughout the world is really tied to the post-colonial situation, especially in the 1950s and 1960s. And under this global acceptance and rubric of this notion of sovereignty, that every country, no matter how small you are, can declare yourself independent. And that this idea called sovereignty, which could be a really old idea, but uh, really formulated under the nation state system, gives a country a right to defend and claim itself as a legitimate country. I think one good beginning to understanding the history of nuclear weapons is really to think about the notion of sovereignty in the mid 20th century. Um, uh, North Korea was part of this newly emerging world after the Second World War, where sovereignty and independence were key ways of distinguishing itself. North Korea's nuclear program actually goes back to this moment in the
2: 1950s. This is in the, the aftermath of the Korean War, then?
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And the Korean War itself, is almost always thought of as a war between ideologies, between communism and capitalism. But it was also a a war that involved class tension, decolonizing efforts on the entire Korean Peninsula. And it was this moment that really became a major push for the North Korean government to, in harsh terms, get rid of its competitors and build a nation state that can stand up to the so-called superpowers in the region.
1: Would you say then that the nuclear program in North Korea is a product of its trying to get independence?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. It was about sovereignty. It was about a rational choice for the future. And it was about a realistic evaluation of its material condition. um, North Korea initially began to pursue the nuclear program as a source of energy and in the 80s and early 90s with the fall of the Soviet Union and state socialism around the world, weaponizing the nuclear program became a very, very important task and a kind of a national mission.
2: And was this, would you say, a national mission where the international audience or the domestic audience was more important?
0: That's a great question. That's a great point. I think the answer is both. Especially from the nineteen nineties, late nineteen nineties, as North Korea recovered from serious economic depression, as well as the the massive um, famine and the effects of chronic hunger. You know, which probably claimed the lives of of about a million people. You know, from this context. The nuclear weapon became a very important symbol for the population as a way of connecting, galvanizing. Of course, it was an instrument of the state to use the weapons making system as a way to strengthen itself, but also to communicate with the population. And at the same time, it became a way of engaging with the world too. You know, North Korea without much material sources, without much cash, and under this constant global media portrayal of isolation and poverty and authoritarianism, the nuclear weapons themselves became an important tool of negotiation, of being able to sit at the same table, if you will.
1: I wanted to ask, I think we've touched on it in a, in a roundabout way, this term, and I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it correctly, uh, Juche, uh, J-U-C-H-E. Could you tell us what that is?
0: The way you say the word is Juche. so It's a two-syllabic word, Juche. It primarily and officially refers to the philosophy of Kim Il-sung, the mm-hmm. founding leader of North Korea. And the idea really became concrete in the early 1970s, and now it's even part of the Constitution. It basically gives the message that people are responsible for their own future and that independence and self-reliance are the most important feature of an individual, but also the government. Officially, The principles of Juche guides all sectors of life in North Korea, from economic policy to education and so forth. And, you know, and on that respect, it is very similar to ideas of liberalism, for example, you know, which guides the behavior of many entities in all parts of the world, right? But it it also has a kind of aside that it's always about militarism and being strong and standing up to superpowers and so forth. And the nuclear weapons program is always talked about in terms of Chuche as it symbolizes the national philosophy of Chuche.
1: So if they denuclearize, how is that going to affect their seat on the world stage and this idea of Juche?
0: That's a really an important point. North Korea is experiencing some kind of a turning point now. The accepted public discourse in North Korea is that because of the might of the weapon system that it showed to the world, North Korea is now able to talk to and negotiate with these countries, especially the United States, especially. And North Korea has proven to its own public that this has happened. And having the bomb was a key factor to this success. In a way, the bomb has answered the question. The bomb has done its job. And North Korea talks about the bomb in that respect, that without the bomb, uh, this was probably not possible. It is still measured in respect to the Chuche philosophy. But what is also interesting is that in North Korea, Chuche is not invoked as much as it was done in the past, especially not in the media, not so much. There are changes happening in North Korea in the past five, six years that signal some kind of a liberal reform and acceptance of rhetoric that are more common in the West.
2: What sort of rhetoric did you have in mind in particular? So instead
0: of always talking about weapons as some kind of a tribute to the leadership or Chuche, or, the nuclear bomb is talked about as a way of talking to the world for a better economic future. This will lead to more cooperation, trade, better relationship with their style enemies. And ironically, in terms of peace, North Korea doesn't talk about crushing its enemies, not as much, especially not in reference to South Korea. Mm -mm. No. So the common rhetoric that we heard in the past of turning Seoul, the capital of South Korea, into a sea of fire, that kind of tone is entirely gone.
2: So obviously this is how nuclear proliferation and nuclear weapons are, are presented in North Korea and how they're sort of thought about. As an existential risk to, to mankind, how, how threatening do you find nuclear proliferation? Yeah, you know, uh, that's such a um,
0: complex issue. Many experts, including myself, we don't think a war with North Korea will happen. You know, these uh, these governments, South Korea, North Korea, and China, Russia, and the United States, they act under a certain rationality of self-preservation and some sort of calculation about Outcome and North Korea knows better than anyone else that a nuclear war would be a really, really devastating event. However, I think the militaries and everything that surrounds the militaries I'm talking about research, I'm talking about people, I'm talking about the cultures surrounding the militaries are still, I believe, an existential threat in in many ways. This is not just for North Korea, but also for the United States, clearly, and also for Europe as well, where the culture of militaries and the system of the military complex that are built based on possible threats, and and all militaries essentially have to do that. I mean, they have to act on possible threats, but these enormous systems that are continuously built are a major hindrance to communication and engagement and
2: empathy across the world so really the the risk related to nuclear weapons and nuclear warfare comes from communication and and the cultures as you were saying yes, yes, on the one hand, you can discern a change in North Korea today
0: where because of the nuclear weapons it 's able to sit at the negotiations table. And at the same time, the rhetoric of destruction is disappearing from the media. But of course, North Korea is still largely based on developing its militaries. And the general culture is largely influenced by militarism. This is also true in South Korea. This is also true in the United States. And what I am Thinking about when I when I think about this kind of global trend is that this vast buildup of the weapons system and the militaries are still a, a major blockway of people still communicating. So it's the state that are leading this dialogue. It is still the government and not just the government, key party officials, right? there is really no communication between civil society of North Korea and the civil society in the United States, between, you know, college students of the UK and and the college students of North Korea. So that kind of dialogue is still not happening. And I believe that the enormous investment and system of militaries in these regions are, in many ways, fueling this still hostile ways of, of viewing these places.
1: How do you think not just communications in general, but modern forms of communication make an impact in these relations? Could it lead to nuclear weapons being fired by mistake? We can
0: say that there is a rationality operating here that would prevent these governments of ever engaging in nuclear warfare. You know, But at the same time, militaries don't have to work under the same kind of rationality and we know from various sources that during the cold war there was also a very fatalistic rationality where the end game was the destruction of the whole humanity and this was part of the plan designed by the west as well as the soviet union right this need or this final outcome of destroying much of the globe right I think we always need to be vigilant about this kind of military logic that is operating. In a way, this demands, as part of civil society, this demands our constant need to pressure our governments as part of responsible members of the global community to really think about all the risks that are out there.
2: How would you compare the the present situation to to the Cold War in that light? There's the famous uh, doomsday clock kept by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which I think is still at two minutes to midnight as we speak in our our different time zones. Do you see it as less stable now than at the height of the Cold War? Because the system is, is sort of unknown, or is that a bit of a myth in itself? It was just as dangerous then as it is now. I
0: think we know very well that warfare has not really slowed down despite the fact that the soviet union is no longer there so Mm -hmm. the concrete enemy with the face of of communism you know that kind of enemy you can say no longer exists but i think you know these superpowers they are continuously creating more enemies and ways of drawing boundaries between cultures, this constant process of enemy making. I think that's bigger than ever. Has the nuclear weapon played that function or carried out that role of being a deterrent? No, that has not happened. And I think that um, notion of the nuclear bomb is a deterrent. I think it is a myth. Uh, We have seen throughout the world that it does not prevent attacks and it does not prevent warfare. North Korea's actual nuclear capability is probably very low. Can it actually launch a successful attack to Europe or to the United States? That is highly questionable.
1: So we've talked a lot about the political situation and the military for North Korea. If you look at everyday life, that's one of your focus. What can we learn from looking at the everyday life in North Korea about them uh, in terms of their nuclear program?
0: Everyday life or studying everyday life of a place like North Korea really is a comparative and transnational effort. It is to really see how different, initially, North Korea is. And that is always a comparative question how different one country is. You know, in my own research, I quickly realized that looking for differences was not always easy. So by that, what I am trying to mean is, as a post-colonial developing small country, North Korea's historical trajectory was in many ways similar to so many other countries throughout the world. North Korea is unique in certain respects, for sure. At the level of, of propaganda, for sure. At the level of state penetration into everyday life, And the use of a certain language when it comes to the leadership and the country and the government. All these things, um, North Korea do exhibit certain uniqueness, absolutely. But the system itself and how the people engage in their day-to-day activities and what the aims are, what they live for, all these things are part of the universal condition. One avenue that I look at is industrialism. And North Korea, in many ways, depended on modern capitalist form of industrialization to build its country, build its post-war period. And in many ways, we can talk about propaganda and juche and the leadership, but another major source of organization in North Korea was labor. With work and this is a uh, universal phenomenon the way we work and live in our modern world is in many ways a very powerful way of unifying or organizing or controlling us and i saw a very similar process in north korea
1: in talking about that idea have you found that people are receptive to it or would people be hostile to thinking that North Korea might not be so different after all? Yes,
0: yeah, some people are. Some people are. But I'm not the only one in this argument. So there's a growing body of um, North Korea scholars, North Korea researchers. There's also a separate body of historians and theoreticians who are trying to redefine what state socialism really was or what socialism as it existed really was. And we are beginning to see that it's actually useful to see state socialism as part of the same modern world, especially under the same rubric of global capitalism.
1: So could that act of seeing it as part of our system in the modern world could that help us deal with North Korea and get to a point where we're not talking about nuclear threat anymore? Could that be a way to end a nuclear crisis or prevent one from happening?
0: Absolutely. I think so, especially when it comes to opening up the civil societies. In this respect, I think there are points where we share so many things with the North Koreans. And as as students, as workers, I think we need to take advantage of these points and approach North Korea in a more empathetic way to criticize the government. We need to, just as much as we need to criticize the United States government and the UK government. But as citizens and as members of the international community, we have to search for points of empathy, similarities. And I think uh, we can certainly do that with North
1: Korea. One thing I did want to ask you about was your interdisciplinary research that you get involved with. As I understand, you were part of the team that set up and were the co-founder for the Institute of Korean Studies at the University of Missouri. Am I right in thinking that the center brought these historians together with people working in law, politics, policy, tourism as well,
0: my colleague who uh, worked with me to found this institute, Sheena Gritens, you know, she's also someone who wants to overcome any kind of disciplinary boundaries. And I think, you know, this is, this is always done, right? This is always done. But sometimes as, as scholars, we are protective of our departments and our disciplines. But at the same time, we always want to reach out. We always want to.
1: Of course, that's one of the main intentions of our podcast. On the topic of existential risk, trying to, to bring history and philosophy and the arts into the discussion.
2: The big point of the project is to show that it's quite helpful when these subjects aren't selled off from one another. And...
1: You know, I,
0: I just don't really get how a historian or a political scientist can identify someone from another field as this or that with certain limitations. I just don't understand that kind of identifying each other, right? I think in reality, we don't think about people in those terms.
1: Harrison, thank you so much for talking to us today.
0: Thank you for talking to me and, and listening to me and, you know, and indulging me.
1: If you want to know more about this topic, Harrison's new book, Heroes and Toilers Workers' Life in Postwar North Korea, 1953 to 61, is out now. Thanks for listening. For more information about this series, visit humanitiesxrisk.com. This podcast would not have been possible without the help and support of the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities and the Balliol Interdisciplinary Institute.